by the mercies of God, the grace of God enough. And His forgiveness is something to rejoice in. And I appreciate that good message and song. I really do. This is incredible. What a wonderful Sunday night crowd. I mean this sincerely. I really, I, when I stepped outside and saw the apocalyptic uh, <laughs> skies, I thought, man, I don't even know if I'm going to be there tonight, much less anybody else. So, boy, I'm glad you're here. I, maybe this is common to you, but uh, I'm scared out of my wits. I don't know what's it. No, I'm, I'm just joking. I don't know what's going to come, and I don't know what the clouds are going to bring, but I'm sure glad that you're here, and I thank you for coming. I, I know that you've got a, probably a busy day tomorrow, and uh, maybe kids have got school, and of course, if they're homeschooled, you can start anytime you want to, and uh, you know, and, and, and along that line, you can get going in, in your day. And I don't know what tomorrow holds for you, if there's a holiday for you, if there's a, a break in the action, but we're going to gather together again tomorrow night. How about that? Amen. Seven o'clock tomorrow night. You say, well, I don't think I can come. Oh, we're coming after you if you don't come. So I, if I were you, I'd make sure you're here, okay? I really do appreciate you being here tonight. It means the world to me. I feel like I've already been with you a while since we had the banquet last night and then, of course, this morning and uh, and then and now back together tonight. This is just super. Appreciate you coming. I really do. Matthew chapter 10. Would you go there with me? Matthew chapter 10. Well, we've already been here. 45 minutes, all right? Now, it's six. It's almost 6.45. I have no idea if you're used to getting down at 7 o'clock. I can't even say hello in 15 minutes, all right? I mean, I, I mean, l- listen to me. I'm kind of ramping up even as it is right now. And I, I know I was kind of uh, on the longer side this morning than what you're used to. I'm going to do everything I can to kick this thing into high gear and get us through this. But it's imperative that we see some things that Jesus is saying. So I don't, I, I, I don't know what your night holds or even tomorrow holds, but please understand, I'm doing the best I can, all right? I really will try to do that. And what are you going to do, fire me? I don't, I, you know, I don't work here. So, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> you can fire me by not coming back. I know that. So I'll do my best to use our time wisely, okay? You know what? How many of, you, how many of the kids, you, you have school tomorrow? You have school? No. Is it a holiday? Good. Good. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, then just relax. We're going to be here for a while. And I was going to say, kids don't care about school. It's overrated anyway. So just, just uh, I'm just kidding, of course. You know, the Lord Jesus was right up front. There was no hidden small print in the contract with the Lord Jesus. Yesterday, I checked out of a hotel and I thought that I had already paid everything. And then they said, oh, no, no, we we need another 60 something odd dollars out of you. And I said, what? And uh, we chatted about it and I found out that in the contract of what I signed up for online through a third party, there was small print on the third page of the of what I signed up for. And I didn't know that. Well, I'm going to tell you something with the Lord Jesus. There's no small print. He lets you know right up front what he's asking you to do and to be. And the same for me. There is no, there's no, uh, there's no surprise. Now, now that I've got you in, I got you strapped in. You can't get out. No, no, it's not that way with the Lord Jesus. And in Matthew chapter ten, he is beginning to teach these folks who were following him, and he shows them what it is that 
is going to be expected of them. Now, this will not be an exhaustive list. And again, I'm not going to cover everything that could be covered tonight because I I do want to be kind to you. But the truth is, Jesus lets everyone who's following him know what's involved with this. Just look at verse 1, first of all, would you? He says in verse 1, And when he had called unto him his twelve, now notice the next word, disciples. Back up a little bit, you see the word called. He called unto him his twelve disciples. Now folks, this is the beginning of his preparation of his, the word is disciples. Most of you probably know this, but the word disciple means a student, a pupil, or a learner. One who's put himself in a classroom setting to learn from his teacher. Jesus is the teacher. If we could travel back in time, have you ever thought about how cool it would be to go back into time? It really would be. You know, there are certain historical time frames we'd all love to have seen. And uh, once we saw uh, their living conditions, we'd want to hurriedly get back to our conditions. But the truth is, uh, if you travel back into Bible times, you would see that Jesus was not the only one who had a gathering of students around him. This was a common occurrence. There There were rabbis... There were Pharisees, there were teachers of the law that went about with their gathering of students, their disciples. That's why why, uh, the Pharisees got so upset with this Jesus that came along because he was, quote, stealing. They were losing their students to this guy who, who taught differently than what they taught. Okay, so Jesus is calling his students unto him. Now look at verse 2. It says, Now the names of the twelve, now notice the change of word, apostles, are these. And he goes through the list of the twelve disciples slash apostles. Now at first glance you may think, oh they mean the same thing. Not really. They're two different words, but the truth is the scriptures are telling us that both words helped us to grab the understanding of what it is that Jesus is calling us to be. A disciple, student, an apostle, which means a sent one with a message. Someone who goes forth with the message that he's going to give them in the classroom of discipleship. You following that? Now, with that in mind, there's a lot of verses I wish I could show you earlier, but let's go down to verse 24. Would you look at verse 24? Jesus is still teaching with no small print. He says, the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, (coughs) how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, or without your father knowing it. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value 
than many sparrows. Now, Father, please help me tonight with these, my friends, to be able to be a careful and, and, and complete teacher preacher of this passage. Lord, this matter of being a follower of you is, is big time. It's top drawer. Lord, I know that. And if we're not careful, we will just listen to words tonight and say that was interesting. But Lord, I don't want it to be interesting. I want it, Lord, to be even more than inspiring. I, I, I pray that tonight it will be corrective. I pray that it will be instructive. I pray that it will be something that will give guidance and be illuminating in our lives. <laughs> and may each one of us go forth from this place realizing what it is you're asking or calling us to be and even to do. And we ask it in our Savior's glorious name. Amen. It's come up already a couple of times that, that Lynn and I call Texas our home now. I grew up in Texas. And, uh, uh, you know, something about being in Texas is there's a lot of things. Well, first of all, have you ever met a Texan? Uh, they talk about it. You know, here I am. I've brought it up more than once. I'm sorry. It won't be the last. Uh, but uh, you just it's just kind of what you grow up with. When you grow up in Texas, it's kind of inculcated in your head that you're a Texan and Feel sorry for those who aren't. And I, I, that's just kind of the way, and I just, I'm just joking. But there's another thing that get, got indoctrinated into us when you live in Texas, and this may not appeal to you, may not even be important to you whatsoever, but the subject of football is really big in Texas. I mean, it is too big. It's really big. And so every kid grows up thinking about playing football. I've often joked that when a baby is born, they just hand him a football right then. I mean, it's just incredible how important it is. Well, I, I lived in a generation of time in which coaches went to the school of, um, I don't know, Adolf Hitler. I mean, they, they went to the school of the most, most brutal dictators I've ever seen in my life. They, they demanded of us more than I think we could personally give. But they would push and scream and holler and demand in order to get more out of us than what we were giving. And they would say silly things like, you know, they'd say, uh, when, the, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Ooh, that's inspiring. And it makes you want to go out and pop somebody in the jaw, you know, I mean, just really go get it. Or, or they'd say, give me 110%. Well, if you know anything, if you've got a just a remedial knowledge of math, you know that's impossible, all right? You can't give 110%. You can only give 100%. Well, anyway, they'd say, give me more. Give it all you got. Look, folks, I've played, uh, you're, going to, you're going to use your imagination here. I've played in weather that was so hot. Do you remember hot weather? Do you remember that around here? Uh, I've I played in such hot weather with all this gear on, equipment of, of a helmet and shoulder pads and heavy, heavy equipment. that It'd be so hot on a late August day that the, the, the heat waves, the heat waves would come off the ground. You couldn't even see the goalpost on the other end of the field. I mean, it was just like, I think it's over there. Let me swim through the mist of, of all this humidity. And we're out there saying, yeah, let me tackle somebody and, and knock them down and, you know, in, in, in Christian love. Let me go after them with everything I've got. All right. Those coaches were demanding of us to be, now this isn't the term they used, but it's a more common phrase of today. They, they called us to be all in. To give it all we have, they'd say, we, they wouldn't use those terms, but they were demanding of us to be all in. And I can remember in the eighth grade, on our little eighth grade team, one of the ball players on our team was so, so fervent about being all in that 
he literally ran from, the coach was sending him from the sideline back into the game to play. We were on defense, which uh, for anyone who may not be familiar with it means that we did not have the ball. The other team had the football and they were calling a play in their huddle to say who was going to run with the ball, who was going to catch it or so forth. They were over there running. We were on defense and this guy on our team was so pumped and he was so all in that when the coach was sending him back out on the field, he ran all the way to the other team's huddle. I mean, he ran all the way. He was just so pumped. He wasn't watching what he was doing. He wasn't watching where he was going. And you remember the eighth grade? There's not a lot going on. Anyway, uh, anyway, he, he was running all the way. Forgive me, any eighth grader that's in the room. Uh, but they probably didn't get the joke. Anyway, anyway, uh, he, he was... He was running all the way out there to the other team's huddle and he bends down and he, and he's, he's looking at these people. And I don't know if he had a, a cognitive thought at the moment, but if he did, he must have thought, I, I don't know these people, you know, who are these people, you know? And, and all of a sudden he realized I'm on the wrong side and he runs to the other side. Now, how do you, how do you tell a referee not to give us a penalty? And, uh, you know, to to penalize our team just because he went to their huddle. I mean, you, you don't do that. How do you tell the referee, sir, sir, you don't need to penalize us. Yes, sir, he may have heard what they're going to do. It doesn't make any difference. He's not of this planet, you know. Okay, that boy was all in. When Jesus was calling his disciples, I'm going to just tell you point blank. Now, you're going to get tired of hearing it in this sermon tonight. Jesus is calling us to be all in. Politicians want it. They want their supporters to be all in. Not just vote for them, but to be vocal supporters of their causes and their, and their agenda. And during election seasons, you will see people who have their favorite politician and they'll stand on street corners with a banner and, and hand out uh, promotion things of, of, of their favorite candidate. They're all in with that politician. Ball teams have their fans, which comes from the term fanatic. You've seen them. They paint their faces the color of their, of their team and scream and, and carry on in the stands. It could be freezing. And they, some guy's got his shirt off out there. Of course, he's probably drunk at the time, but he's, he's just all crazy. He's all in for his team. You know, there are terrorist organizations all across this globe. You know what they have with them? They have, and I use the term loosely, they have disciples who are all in who are willing to sacrifice their child by putting a suicide vest on them, or they themselves put it on and walk into a highly populated area and let it blow up and kill people of the enemy. They're all in. Rock musicians have their, we used to call them groupies, and their, 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 their disciples, they, they follow them all across the globe with the hope of someday maybe getting close enough to have a conversation with some guy playing demonic music. They're all in. And yet when it comes to this matter of being a follower of Jesus, sometimes we get such a casual approach to it, we don't even recognize that we're falling short of being really a disciple. Amen. The question tonight has to be asked of me and of you. Am I really a disciple? You say, I go to church. That is wonderful. It's proven tonight. What a great group. But are you a disciple? You say, well, well, I, I read my Bible faithfully. I mean, I mean, very little exception. I read my Bible. Boy, please don't stop that. That's, that's glorious. That's wonderful. But are you a disciple? You say, well, I have a prayer life. Well, I don't doubt it. 
But are you a disciple? You say, I invited someone to come to church this morning, uh, uh, this week. That's good. Thank you for that. But are you a disciple? Am I? You say, well, I don't know, Morris. What, what, what's the fine print? Well, it's not so fine. It's pretty bold. It's, it's, it's black print unless you have a red letter edition. If you have red print or black print on white paper that just comes off clearly. The Lord Jesus says clearly, here's what I'm calling us to be. Now, you, there is an understanding right from the get-go that you can't be a disciple unless you're saved, okay? I mean, the first step of being a disciple is that you've got to be genuinely someone who knows Christ as your own personal Savior. If you've never taken care of that first step, then you can't go any further. You've got to take care of that first. But after that step has been taken, which is the most important step of all, let's look at our passage. Look at verse 24. Jesus says in verse 24, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Now, I want to tell you something. I don't know that the disciples there listening to him needed an explanation, but very possibly they did. And through the rest of his teaching with them, which is ongoing, they, they lived life together. He no doubt made that clear and he abundantly made it clear in a great way as the days went on. But there's no doubt that what he's saying here is this. The student, the disciple, is not above his master. Now the word master there means master teacher. The one that is the teacher. So what's he saying? He's saying the student... You ever heard this, that students would sit at their teacher's feet? The idea there is they were below and the teacher was sitting on a rock or in a chair of some sort and he would teach those listening to him gathered around his feet. Do you remember, do you remember ladies, do you remember the story of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus? All right, it's a great illustration of someone who's seeking to learn. All right, he says the true student is not above his master. Now, don't get lost in words and think there's something overly technical here. What he's saying is the student is not above teaching the teacher. He is below learning from the teacher. You say, well, sure. Okay, I get it. Okay, then he says, and the, and the uh, servant is not above his Lord. Now, again, some explanation of the words. The word Lord there doesn't mean someone who's lording it over them with a whip and, and they're whipping their, their slaves. For the for, for sake of time, please understand what he's talking here. He's talking about an employee who works for an employer is not telling the employer how to run the business. He just simply listens to what the employer wants and he fulfills his task. Well, here it is. The student is not above his teacher, which means this. He submits his mind to the teacher and learns of him. He submits his mind. You got that? The Employee submits his will, or you could say his body. He submits his, his strengths to fulfill the employer's demands. So here it is. You submit your mind, you submit your will or your body to the master. So if you're truly going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, point blank, here it is, you're submissive. You're submissive. You say, what's the point? The point that Jesus is making is simply this. There is a surrender of my will, <coughs> and I want to fulfill His. There is the surrender of, of my general thought processes, and I am seeking to listen to what He has to say, and I'm learning from Him. The idea here, friends, is that a true disciple of Christ submits his or her heart and mind and life 
to the master and they lean in to him to hear what he has to say. Let me just put it down here on the bottom shelf so the boys and girls can get it and the rest of us too. All right, here it is. A person who's a true disciple of Christ, are you hearing me? Is not just reading words when they read their Bible. They're listening to their master. They don't just attend church and get, walk out with an outline and have something written down in a notebook, which is fine. It's a great thing to do. I think it may help us many ways to do that. I've done it for years. But it's not just putting it on paper. It's getting it in our heart. There is a leaning in to say, he's, he's talking to me. You say, preacher, how can I get the most out of my Bible reading? Listen to his voice. You say, oh, you're getting spooky. No, I'm not. I'm telling you the truth. He talks to us. This book is alive. If it turned into a person, it would be Jesus. If Jesus turned into a book, it would be the Bible. Listen to him. Hang on his every word. What's he saying to me? My mother wanted me to learn how to swim when I was a little boy. And she used to say, son, you have got to learn how to swim. I'm scared to death. You're going to drown. My mother had a, just a real fear of water. And you know, parents, you, 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 you transfer your fears to your kids. You know what? And so my mother transferred that fear of water over to me. And to this day, I still live with a little bit of that uh, trepidation of water. And she used to say, you've got to learn how to swim. You've got to. But don't you ever let me see you near water. You could drown. How are you going to learn how to swim? You just don't go read a book, you know, do this with your arm, you know. you know. Well, her boss found out about my inability to swim, and he said to her, he said, Mrs. Gleiser, I can teach your son Morris how to swim. I was probably eight or nine at the time. I'd never learned how to swim yet. And no, maybe even maybe nine, ten, or eleven, or something like that. I don't remember how old I was. Anyway, I didn't know how to really swim. And so, and she said, well, would you teach him how to swim? He said, yeah, I'd be glad to. And so he took me out on a couple of lessons. And I'm telling you what, I, I, I learned so much. I learned how to swim. And I just, I learned and listened to what he had to say. I was just focused on what he was telling me to, to do with holding my breath and how to move my arms and my feet and so forth. All right. I overheard him talking to my mother later on, and he said, he said, Mrs. Gleiser, I have taught a lot of kids how to swim. But he said, no one has been as interested in learning how to swim as your son, Morris. He said, when I talked to him, he was locked in. And I heard him say this. He said, I don't even think he blinked when I taught him anything. I overheard that. And here's honestly what I thought I said. Well, sir, it's a matter of life or death. You know, I, I didn't want to blink and miss something. What, what, what did you just say? I don't want to miss that. You know, I was scared to death. I was, I was submitting my mind to his teaching because of my fear of water. I wanted to learn how to swim. Can I say to you that when it comes to the word of God, let me tell you what James said. James said in chapter 1, he said, don't just be a, a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. He said, for a, for a man who wants to be blessed is a man who looks, uh, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. That's the Bible. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Did you get that? He said, this man who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and here it is, continues therein. 
What does that mean? It means he leans in. Earlier he said, there are so many who come to the word of God like a mirror and straightway forgets what manner of man they were. They come to the Bible and they go on and live their life. I've often said it's like two, two teenagers, a teenage boy and a teenage girl. A teenage boy gets up in the morning, first thing he thinks about is food. You know, that's the first thing he thinks about. Goes to the kitchen and he's thinking about, you know, a couple of bowls of cereal, a stack of pancakes, half of a hog, and, uh, uh, you know, six eggs, you know, just to get the day started right, you know. And then he thinks, oh, i got to get ready for school. He goes to the bathroom, he looks in the mirror, and he goes, I'm good. And he takes off. You know, I brushed my teeth yesterday. I'm fine. You know, he straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Don't lose this. A teenage girl, when they get up in the morning, they're not usually thinking about food. They're thinking about damage control, you know, and they they go into the into the bathroom and they're going, ah, you know, and they close the door and they start plugging things up and smoke comes out underneath the uh, the bathroom. You hear things running inside there as she puts herself back together again. Okay. She continues therein to come out about an hour and a half later and says, you just have to take me as I am. You know, well, yeah, well, you worked at that. But my point is, the point is simply this. The difference between somebody who is a godly individual and just an average good church-attending Christian is someone who comes to the Word of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me check off another day. Let me go to church. Let me check off another Sunday. And forgets what manner of man they were versus a person who continues therein. And they glean what they can. And they see things in the mirror of God's Word that they need to focus on. And what God's talking to them about. Okay, let me hurry. Number one, a disciple is submissive. Number two, look at verse 25. He says, It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. Let me just stop right there. It is enough. (laughs) It's like the Lord (laughs) is saying, bottom line, it is enough for the disciple... Then he says that he be, the words he be simply means to undergo undergo a change. Don't get lost, please. Don't stay with me. It's the idea of becoming something. In science, we used to call it metamorphosis, if you recall the term. It's something that starts like this and goes through a system of metamorphosizing. I don't even know if that's a real word, but after a period of time, he becomes a beautiful butterfly. Okay, the idea there is he be. He is becoming, undergoing a change as his master. And the word as doesn't need any explanation, but it just simply means to be like him. So what does it mean to be a true follower? Picture Jesus. He's teaching his disciples. He says, you're going to be my follower? Let me tell you what it includes. You've got to be submissive. You've got to be locked in. You've got to be all in on what I'm teaching. First of all, how are you doing with that one? Then he says, and it is enough if you're really going to be my disciple, that you seek to be as your master through a series of undergoing changes of metamorphosizing. So what does that mean? He means that you are shaped into his image. Come up close to your Bible and get this tonight. A true disciple is someone who is striving to be Christ like godly in their actions, reactions, 
responses, word choice, decision making, in every element of their life, there is a thought of, I want to be like my master. And allowing him to shape you into his image. Let, let, me, let me plow close to the corn. Those who know us best, those who know you better than anybody else, those who love you more than anybody else, those who know you better than anybody else, if they were asked, to be honest, to describe you to anybody else, would the word godly ever come up? Now, that's kind of an unfair question, I'll be honest. It, and and I, I should have said that to begin with. That's an unfair question to ask of you because if you said, oh no, nobody would say I'm godly, well then you're missing the point that Jesus is saying. But if you said, oh yes, I believe that people would say I'm godly, well then you just lost whatever it is you thought you had. So you, you can't win, you can't win with answering that question. I get it. I get it. But only you can answer the question in your heart, do I live in such a way that my kids, my spouse, my friends, my acquaintances, my closest associates, would they consider me to be someone who is seeking to pursue Christ? Young people, people you go to school with and people you may have a job with, would they ever say of you, uh, that kid is not like other kids. He's, he's, got a, he's got a mark of spirituality to him. I went up to a teenage boy when I was a teenager and I told him, I said, your testimony challenges me. I said, I wish I was half the Christian you are. I think I was 17 and he was 18 at the time. I said, your, your life, your testimony challenges me. And what I said to him, I found myself asking myself later on, would anybody ever say that to me? And if not, why not? There is a shaping that is to take place in my life and in your life in which others can see Christ in you. We all know Romans 8 and verse 28. You say, I don't know it. Yet you will when I start quoting it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes right into verse 29, same sentence, and it says, For whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate, don't let the word scare you, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Did you hear that? All things work together for good for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. We are to be in the process of becoming more like Christ. And the truth is, sometimes we're just satisfied with just being kind of a good old boy Christian. I don't seek to criticize and I seek not to put anybody on a guilt trip. My, my, oh my, you worked hard to get here tonight. But the Word of God, Jesus is clearly declaring that if you're going to be my disciple, there needs to be a hungering and thirsting to be like me. We live in a fallen world. For further reference, just turn on your TV. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world deeply corrupted by sin. And it's under the influence of Satan himself. We live in a world that is supernaturally hostile toward God and His Word. 
And if you immerse yourself and go swimming in this world and participate in uh, all the things of this world. Now, we're in this world. I know that. But we're not to be of this world. But if you go swimming in this world and try to participate in its entertainments and participate in all of its thought processes and its philosophy, do not think that you can come out of that unscathed. And do not think that anybody's going to look at you and say, you are a real model of Christ-likeness. I'm convinced that we're living in a day, probably it's been true for generations, of sloppy Christianity. And I don't mean just like this. I mean just a sloppy Christ-likeness. It's not really visible. He's not visible. A great preacher of yesteryear, I mean a godly man, by the name of Robert Murray McShane said this, It is not great talents that God blesses as much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. Number one, if you're going to be a disciple, you need to be submissive. Number two, you need to be shaped into His image. There's more, but for time I need to hustle. Look at verse 25 again, would you? He says, It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household. Now, what in the world is he talking about? All right. He says, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be my servant, if you're going to be my employee, understand something. If the master of the house is called Beelzebub, all right, what in the world? The term Beelzebub in that day was, was a vile term. Jesus was not using foul language. Don't misunderstand he was, he was using a term of a false god that the religious crowd would speak of in a very derogatory manner. If, you knew, if we took time to really study what Beelzebub meant, it was, a, it was, it was not just derogatory, it was, it was a term of defilement. It was, it was horrific. And if you call somebody a tool of Beelzebub or as bad as Beelzebub, you just couldn't call anybody much lower than that, Okay. Uh, think about the most horrific name that somebody has ever called you, or maybe you've ever heard anybody call anybody. Terms that just turn your stomach, okay? Jesus said, if they call the master of the house this horrible term, did you see what the rest of what he said? He said, don't expect for you not to have trouble. If you're going to be my follower... And they call the master of the house Beelzebub. How how did he put it? He said, how much more shall they call them of his household? In other words, what he's saying is this. Don't miss it. And this is where we lose a lot of disciples. You may sit there tonight and say, you know something? I want to submit myself and lean into the word of God and hear what he has to say. You know what, Morris? I want to be shaped into his image. I want Christ to be seen in me. I may lose you here. More importantly, Jesus may lose you here. Are you ready? To be a disciple, it means find thirdly. You, you, you may suffer. There's no question about it. You're going to suffer. In fact, go ask Job about that. Job was the highest star in the galaxy of followers of God in his day. He was the tallest tree in the forest. And the lightning struck him. And he couldn't understand why. Why is this happening to me? I pray for my family. I, I, make, I, I take care of my, my obligations to God. 
I don't understand this. And he says at one time, he says in chapter 9, he said, I wish I had a mediator between me and God. He called him a daysman. Somebody that could get me in touch with God so God could explain to me, what's he doing? He was completely in the dark. He didn't understand. He was suffering and didn't get it. And on top of that, so-called friends made accusations about him that were totally off base. Completely not true. And he knew what it was to be alone. He knew what it was to be lonely. And you may two times, if you're a follower of Christ, feel so alone and lonely and disregarded and talked about and abandoned and gossiped about. People hurt you. People disappoint you. You may lose a job. You may, you may have family sorrow. You may have physical pain. You may go through things and you wonder, why is this happening to me? Every follower of Christ is going to know some suffering. And I, I wish I could elaborate more, but I'm just simply saying to you tonight, James once again said this in chapter 1. Don't, don't miss this. I know it's boring to some because you don't want to go here. But he said, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various testings and trials, diverse trials. Count it all joy when you fall. The word fall is the image here of something that's painful. Well, I've never known a trial not to be. He says, count it all joy when, not, not, not if you're going to have trials, but when you have trials. When you fall, there's a force to them. Into diverse, which means it comes in various forms. What may hurt you may not hurt me. What hurts me may not hurt you. And the Lord, in His sovereign care, allows the difficulties and pains to go through His hands of permission first to come into your life to cause that hurting to take place. And what's he doing? It's all a part of the shaping of Christ's likeness in your life so that people will know that's a disciple of mine. That's a disciple of Christ. You may suffer. I had a teenage boy. You know, I, I speak of teenagers a lot because that's the crowd I spent many years with, 20, 20 25 years in ministry. <sighs> I had a teenage boy look at me in the, in the face one time. He went to a public school and he said, Brother Morris, you have no idea how hard it is to take a stand for Christ in the public school. He says, I play football. I'm, the, I'm one of the captains on the football team, which meant this. He was a good ball player. To be a captain, you've got to be one of the best. And he said, I am mocked. I am made fun of. I, I go through a great deal of abuse. He told me more than he had to endure. And I thought to myself, I never saw that when I was in school. It continues to get rough on kids who are really going to stand for God. To carry a Bible to school, to carry a Bible to work, to pull it out during a break and to read it, to, to pray over a, a noon meal in the, in the company uh, lunchroom. Someone may say, what was that all about? To have a family member break your heart, to have a to have uh, someone find fault with you, to have somebody say that the trouble you're going through is a result of God's angry with you? May I simply say to you, a true disciple of Christ is going to know suffering. And there's one more thing. Look at verse 27. He says in verse 27, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what you hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops. What I, what I said to you in darkness. Ooh, what's Jesus talking about? 
He's talking about those times when we have talked <laughs> at night, when it's dark out, sky, out at, at night and the skies are dark. When you and I have been up in the up in maybe the Garden of Gethsemane together or when, when we've been up on Mount of Olives together, when we've been out somewhere and it's just been us. And I'm just sitting and I'm teaching you some things in those moments of when it's just me and you. He says that what I've taught you, you go take to others and you tell them in the daylight what I've told you in private. He says, and that which I've spoken to you in the ear. The idea there is what I said to you that could have been whispered. Whispered in the ear. He says, you take that and you go shout it on the rooftop of people's houses. Now, folks, he's not saying go climb up on somebody's roof and then yell down the chimney. You better get right with God. No, he's not saying that. All right. You won't be doing that very long. You'll be hauled away to either jail or to a funny farm. I mean, the truth is you, you won't last. But what he's saying is simply this. What I've told you in private, let's, let's put it like this. What I've told you in Sunday school or, or in church service, what I've told you in private, quiet times of Bible reading, it's just me and you. Go tell others what I'm doing in your life. And that which I have spoken to you what I've whispered to you. Go tell people. what, what I, He says, and, and shout it. What's he saying there? He's saying, speak up boldly, courageously, confidently, fervently. Tell others what I've told you. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? It means finally in our list tonight, there's more, but for tonight, you speak up. For the Lord. You speak out or speak up, whichever way you want to express it. We can sit here tonight and say, I'm all in. Really? Really? If you're all in, then there's a submissiveness to say, I'm going to hang on to everything Jesus tells me. There is, secondly, a desire to be shaped into his image and allowing him to do it. Sometimes, thirdly, through suffering. And then finally, you speak up for him. Hey, there's no secret service agents in the discipleship crowd of Jesus Christ. There's nobody hiding in the midst of the crowd saying, I don't want anybody to know I'm a follower of Jesus. No, you speak up. Not rudely, not abruptly, not abrasively, not oddly to where people think, man, I want nothing to do with their Christianity. No, but you speak for Him. And you tell others how He has changed your life. We're talking about evangelism. We're talking about discipling others, speaking up for Him. And when I was a kid, I came to a crossroads in my life in a night of decision that I have looked back on several times since. I was attending a baseball game. I was not playing the game. I was watching some of my friends play, and I was sitting up in the bleachers watching this game. And while watching this game, sitting around a bunch of friends, the conversation that was going on up there in the bleachers kind of turned <coughs> in a way that was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable with what was being said and discussed. I can't tell you what, really what it was that was being discussed, but I just remember thinking, I don't like this. So much so that I thought, I need to get away. And I didn't say, hey guys, let's stop talking this way. I had not come to that point. I just was uncomfortable with what was being discussed. And finally I just said, 
hey, I, I'm, I'm going to head to the house. I'll see you guys later. I flipped around on the back part of the bleachers and jumped down and I started walking home. And the distance to my house was about two to three miles. And as I was walking home, I was praying. And here's what I was saying. I was saying, Lord, that made me uncomfortable. And I'm not real sure why. I just know that it, it, was, it was stuff that didn't please you, I'm sure. And I said, God, I don't want to be, I don't want to live the rest of my life talking like that. I don't want to live the rest of my life being with people who think that's funny, who think that's entertaining, who think that's the way to talk. I said, Lord, I, there's got to be something better than this. And by the time I got home, I just wanted to read the Bible. And I, I, I just grabbed my Bible and I started reading. And I didn't normally do that. Again, I was early on in my decision-making like this, and I started making this time alone with the Lord. And I read in the Bible, I read in the Psalms, and as I was reading the Psalms, I was saying, Lord, what, what the psalmist is saying right there, that's what I feel right there. I believe that. Oh, Lord, he's confessing his sin, and I'm confessing my sin right there. God, I too want to do that. And I said, Lord, he's talking about loving you, and I want to love you like he's talking about. And I was just pointing out things in the Psalms and saying, that's the way I feel. And you know something, friend? I didn't know what I was doing. But I was signing up that evening to be a disciple. I was saying, I want to stop the direction I'm going and I want to be all in following you. You may sit here and go, well, whoop-de-doo. Have you arrived? Did you arrive on that night? Far from it. Far from it. You say, well, have you ever stumbled from being a disciple? Countless times. You know what I've had to do? I've had to re-enlist over and over and over again. And I think that many times a revival meeting is a time to re-up and get back on board of being all in. You say, I think I am. Just let the words of Jesus explain whether or not you're all in or not. The truth is we're people who are being submissive, shaped, Suffering and speaking out. Re-up your commitment to Him tonight, would you? And say, Lord, I want to be all in. Let's bow our heads.